Hey guys, welcome back to Those Murder Girls Podcast. I hope you guys all had a great week. The weekend is almost here. We just have to push through these last four hours before we're able to enjoy ourselves, not think about the office, not wake up at the butt crack of dawn, and just relax. Before I get into this week's episode, I will try to keep the intro as short as possible. I have some news. Those Murder Girls podcast is now just me, your hostess with the mostess, Raina. And with that comes some new segments that we've had on the board for a while, but never really made it into fruition. So I have my first guest host coming in to share her hometown in the next few weeks. You guys are going to love her. She is a singer. She's a songwriter among many of her talents. And she's just the most beautiful human being altogether. And I have another guest host coming in in May. Super talented, gorgeous girl, and a hell of a dancer. She will also be sharing her hometown. Both of these girls are from California. Both of these cases are crazy. I'm so excited to be able to bring them on and kind of give a little twist to the show. It's going to be so much fun. I've talked to them. They're super excited. They're working on their cases. You guys are just going to love them. And something else that's new that a lot of you guys have been asking about, drumroll please, your favorite show now has a way that you can support. We have a Patreon. You guys can now go on and become monthly patrons and it's super easy. You just go to patreon.com and search for Those Murder Girls Podcast. I set up five tiers to choose from, so I hope one of them suits you. As of right now, it's straight donations to support the show. Bonus content and material will come soon, just as soon as I get this whole new structure down on my own. On the Patreon page, I created a poll. I want to know what you guys want more of. So I created that poll based on things that you guys have been emailing in. So if none of those options really suit you and you guys have an idea outside of the box, email it over to me. I want to hear it. Email it to murdergirls at thosemurdergirlspodcast.com. With that email address, you guys can also make a one-time donation through PayPal if you don't want to sign up for the monthly uh, Patreon, whatever works best for you. Any donation over $3 on Patreon or PayPal will get you guys a shout out on the show. So I just launched this last night and I have my first three patrons. I'm so excited. Thank you so much to Megan, Jesus, and Grace. You guys from the deepest parts of my heart, I love you. You're the best part of the show. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast. All right, so should we get on to today's episode? Today we are in the great state of Idaho, which I'm pretty pissed off at right now because not only did it steal one of my best friends, it also stole one of my favorite cousins. So I'm not exactly happy with Idaho right now. But I guess there is that whole thing where maybe I'll get over this or maybe I'll move to Idaho myself. So let's just get on with today's case. Thomas Eugene Creech, also known as inmate 14984 within the Idaho Department of Corrections, faced an option to sink or swim at a very young age. Born in Hamilton, Ohio, September 1950, Thomas only knew his unstable household as home. Thomas didn't have a typical or ideal upbringing by any means, and life within the Creech family home was a turbulent household. Living under the Creech's family roof wasn't easy for anyone. 
Thomas's parents would divorce when he was an adolescent, and for reasons unknown, Thomas would go on to be raised by his father when his parents separated. Years into their new life as a solo father and son household, Thomas's dad passed away in front of him from an illness that he had been battling. Not only is this so sad, but Thomas says the nurse assigned to his father's case, in his eyes, didn't do enough to help his father in his final moments, which Thomas felt led to his dad's untimely death. Overcome with emotions of sadness, anger, and grief immediately after his father's death, Thomas would attempt to take the nurse's life for the one he felt they let slip away with no regard. Now, all of this is based off of Thomas's recollections because there's little documented about his upbringing by any third-party sources. So now with his father gone, Thomas took off from Ohio to live the life of a drifter around the age of 15. Thomas would go on to travel the country, leaving a trail of bodies in at least 10 states. His first two killings, according to him, were around 1965 and 1967 when he killed a man in San Francisco and then claims to have drowned a friend in Ohio. During his time in San Francisco in 1965, Thomas said that he became heavily involved in the Church of Satan, and this would be before it was actually formed in 1969. He claims to have taken many lives and sacrificed killings as a member of the church. Around the age of 19, Thomas was arrested for unarmed robbery, which landed him a prison sentence of 2 to 50 years. Lucky for him, not so lucky for his future victims, he would be released on parole about three years later in 1971, ready to to pick up right where he left off. Upon his release, Thomas met a pretty lady by the name of Thomasine Lorraine White. Now, I actually don't know if she was pretty because I couldn't find any photos of her, but I'll assume that she was. A couple years into their relationship, the two would wed in 1973. Thomasine may have been pretty on the outside, but she was pretty murderous on the inside as she is suspected of participating in at least one murder alongside Thomas. So Thomas and Thomasine, with their cute little matching names, were wanted in connection with the death of Paul C. Schrader, who was murdered while working his shift at the Downtown Motor Hotel in Tucson, Arizona in January of 1974. He was violently stabbed. Paul was at the wrong place at the wrong time when he came face to face with an angry 23-year-old Thomas Creech who violently stabbed him to death. In an attempt to escape the charges and the motel worker's death, Thomas and his bride hightailed it northwest to Portland, Oregon. They almost made their way there. They almost got away from murder. But then Thomas was cited for disorderly conduct. And when the police ran his name, they made the connection that he was wanted for Paul's death. Thomas Seen would be charged for Paul's murder and Thomas would eventually walk free. This is going to be like a pattern in this story. It's pretty crazy how one guy could literally be so lucky. So Thomas would spend some time in a psychiatric hospital in Salem, Oregon, before being released and moving in to the St. Mark's Episcopal Church Grounds in Portland, where he lived and worked as a maintenance man. He didn't work within St. Mark's for very long, though. Thomas took off when the body of a 22-year-old was found in his room. Like, what the hell? William Joseph Dean was found dead inside of Thomas's room. Ruthless, like... Thomas, you're going to kill on church grounds even? What is wrong with you? 
In a letter that Thomas wrote to an Idaho news outlet later on, Thomas told journalists that it was also in 1974 when his wife Thomasine was allegedly assaulted by 11 men before they threw her out of a four-story window. She was left so damaged physically and mentally, and Thomas said it was because of this assault that she would eventually end up taking her own life while being housed inside of an Oregon State Hospital. That is so heartbreaking. Thomas would be soon arrested again, this time for violating his parole, and it was for stealing. So just like, thank God it wasn't for killing someone else. I kind of want to know how he did this because he got busted for stealing 13 cartons of cigarettes. Like, those are fairly long. They're kind of narrow, but... 13 of them like up your shirt down your pants or did he throw them in a cart and like take his chances walking out of the store I don't know Thomas would be given another shot at being a free man after he posed a model behavior within a psychiatric ward that he was thrown into for this violation. He was said to have been on his best behavior for his entire stay. He was released with flying colors, and according to the staff, he was 100% healthy. No mental health issues, nothing to see here. Bye, Thomas. Enjoy your freedom and good luck. So with a new lucky lady by his side, 24-year-old Thomas and 17-year-old Carol Spaulding, ew, that's kind of a big age gap, and she's still a minor, well, they hit the road and they moved back to Idaho to live out their lives happily ever after on the straight and narrow. Just kidding. This wouldn't be Those Murder Girls podcast if the story ended like that. Nobody here lives happily ever after. So with no means of transportation, among other things, these two needed a ride from Lewiston, Idaho to Donley, which was about 175 miles. And while along the side of a road, they stuck out their thumbs and they were picked up by two hitchhiker-friendly traveling painters. And like many that came face-to-face with Thomas Creech, the two men, John Bradford and John Arnold, would likely soon regret their good deed for the day. Because on that cold November afternoon, Thomas was said to be carrying a gun. And both those men would be found dead, buried in a shallow grave along Highway 55 with their car ditched nearby. All three were found the next day in Cascade, Idaho. Thomas Creech and Carol were officially a wanted couple and it wasn't long before they were arrested and charged with two counts of murder. The gun used in both of those killings was buried by a friend of Thomas's, Gene Hilby. Apparently, Gene knew nothing about the murders, but why would you dispose of a gun for someone and not think that there was a reason they were trying to get rid of it? Well, Gene paid for that mistake and served time for obstructing a murder investigation. Carol, just shy of 18 at the time, was charged with one count of murder as an adult in January 1975. There were safety concerns during Thomas Creech's trial due to rumors of the Hell's Angels, who Thomas had associated himself with in the past, coming and attempting to break Thomas free from his charges. Because of these rumors, the case was moved up to the city of Wallace, where it hadn't gotten that much publicity. And nothing ever came of these rumors. There wasn't an angel in sight. According to Thomas, he was responsible for five killings directly related to Hell's Angels hits. So I'm thinking that maybe Thomas just kind of started those rumors because none of these hits were ever confirmed. Again, who knows what's true? Who knows what's false? Who knows who started these rumors? 
And part of me thinks it was just him starting these rumors because the Hells Angels were never mentioned at any other point during his run-in with authorities. So why all of a sudden now would they be a threat, you know, coming to get him and bust him out of these charges? So a judge presiding over Thomas's double murder case announced that even though on many occasions Thomas had denied having anything to do with the murders of those painters, John and John, Thomas had changed his story along the way. Thomas had incriminated himself in the most damning way when he finally said, yes, I killed them, but it was only because they pulled a knife out on Carol threatening to assault her, which is quite the opposite of when he said he had nothing to do with it. And there were other times when Thomas said that someone in Carol's family was actually responsible for the murders. So during his trial as a defense, Thomas took the stand admitting to killing at least 26 others, now still while fully denying killing either of the Johns. And he was able to pinpoint the locations of most of these 26 other bodies. So with all of this, John and his defense team asked if he's admitting to killing this astonishing number of individuals, why would he deny murdering the two painters? Which kind of makes sense. I mean, obviously can go either way, but who knows? 11 of those 26 bodies Thomas was able to lead authorities to, and they were in a mine shaft in California. The victims had either died from stab wounds, beatings, strangulation, or gunshot wounds. There were several other locations that Thomas identified as burial sites, but nothing was ever found there. Thomas was found guilty of both murders in March of 1976. At this time, a guilty charge for a murder was an automatic death sentence. Thomas was set to be hung for his crimes. Idaho law ruled that the automatic death sentence for first-degree murder was unconstitutional a few years later in 1979, and Lucky Thomas was commuted to life in prison in January of 1983, which infuriated prosecutors knowing that moving Thomas out of death row posed a huge risk to so many lives in the general population. And they were right. You gotta trust your gut, people. Thomas was serving a life sentence in the Idaho State Penitentiary, and this is where he met David Dale Jensen, also an inmate in the prison who suffered from a traumatic brain injury caused by a gunshot. The injury required a plastic plate be inserted into David's head. It also caused an impairment in his speech and some physical disabilities. David and Thomas were being housed in the same maximum security penitentiary, only David was there for a much lesser charge of car theft. Thomas, against the wishes of all those familiar with the details of his case, was allowed to hold a job while he was in prison as a janitor. None of the prosecution or anybody who was familiar with Thomas's case thought that this was a good idea because now Thomas would be allowed out of his cell while one other inmate was also out of their cell walking around, do whatever, coming to or from. Per policy, only one inmate is allowed out of their cell at a time, with the inmate janitor being an exception. David Dale had taunted Thomas in the past. Thomas being the janitor liked the areas he was responsible for to be clean and well-respected. David Dale, on the other side, got a kick out of leaving a trail of trash behind because he knew it was Thomas's responsibility to pick it up, and he knew that Thomas was going to be pissed off when he found it. 
And it was on May 13, 1981, when the lives of these two inmates would collide. According to Thomas Creech, who was the only witness to the crime that I'm about to detail, says that David Dale Jensen stormed up to Thomas, violently swinging a battery-filled sock at him, and that Thomas was able to take this makeshift weapon out of David's grip and that he was fearing for his life. So now Thomas has this weapon, but David Dale takes off back to his cell and comes back charging at him and this time with a makeshift knife, which is a razor blade taped to a toothbrush. Thomas says he was able to avoid being stabbed or even killed by the knife, and in self-defense, he had no choice but to begin to beat David Dale Jensen with that battery-filled sock. He said he hit him countless times between the eyes until David was down on the ground. And then even when he was down on the ground, David was still swinging that knife at him. So Thomas had no choice but to begin kicking him in the head and neck until he was no longer moving. Now, blood was all over the floor and it wasn't just from his face. That plastic plate that had been implanted in David's head ruptured, you guys. And we all know how head wounds bleed. There was blood all over the floors and all over the walls. It was a literal murder scene. A correctional officer ends up like catching wind of this, rushes over to try to help David Dale Jensen, who's on the ground literally bleeding to death, and there was very little that he could do to help. David Dale Jensen was transported to a hospital where he later passed away from his injuries. And so, back to the courtroom goes Thomas for like the millionth time. This time, he's about to make history. A judge ruled that despite of the fact that Thomas had every right to defend himself against David Jensen's threats of violence, Thomas went just a little too far. A judge found aggravating factors in Thomas's self-defense case, such as once Thomas's attacker was subdued and basically on the ground, Thomas should have stopped the attack. He should have no longer felt threatened and his attack, actually his excessive attack on David Dale should have stopped. The judge describes David Dale Jensen's murder as extremely gruesome and well beyond self-defense. And for this murder of David Jensen, Thomas is once again sentenced to death. You guys, one guy sentenced to death two times in his life for three separate deaths. So today, Thomas remains in the Idaho State Penitentiary on death row, where he has now been for over 40 years. Nothing's really deathy about this guy's death sentence. He's had two of them against him. It's like, holy shit. This should have been my St. Patrick's Day episode because this guy is lucky. Many appeals have been filed on behalf of Thomas. None of them has worked in his favor, though, as of today. This guy is a dangerous man, no doubt. This was something that was kind of creepy. So Thomas admitted that although he did not intend to kill David Dale Jensen when he was first attacked with that battery-filled sock, that he did know he was going to kill him just seconds later when David Dale Jensen returned with that makeshift knife. Man, to make a decision that you're going to take somebody's life on a whim, I don't think that's the first time he's made a decision like that that quickly. 
While incarcerated, Thomas has married, and he now credits his wife for his tamed behavior. But it's like, is it really her, or is age just slowing you down? <laughs> Who knows? So he also got his GED, and he discovered that he has a creative side to him. But I could not find what his creative talents are. Maybe like prison art? I don't know. Thomas Eugene Creech is a self-proclaimed serial killer who has killed for defense and for thrills. He has claimed to have been paid for contract hits with the Hells Angels. He has claimed to have killed for the Church of Satan. Who knows if those last two are true? Many believe that they're not. Thomas is probably just over there believing his own lies. And who knows how many victims he actually has. He's admitted to his fellow inmates that it's upwards near 42 in all. And for this, a judge has referred to him as a cold-blooded, pitiless killer with an utter disregard for human life. Thomas has admitted to murders in Washington, California, specifically San Diego, San Francisco, and Malibu, Utah, Oklahoma, Wyoming, Montana, Kansas, and Colorado. And his victims, they say, range from 16 to 70 years old. Of the few execution dates that Thomas has had, his most recent being in 1999, he is very much still alive and kicking with no execution date in sight. The cost to house an inmate in the general population within the penitentiary is about $350,000 a year as of 2019. A death row inmate will exceed that cost because it varies on so many different factors. The one key factor is their representation. He is Idaho's longest serving death row inmate. And that means it has cost Idaho taxpayers about $14 million to house this heartless individual. And it's not just him. As of March 2022, just a few weeks ago, there are seven individuals on Idaho's death row. Six men and one woman who, by the looks of her little mini bio on the prison's website, completely wiped out her entire family like husband kids everything I want to read more about it it's so crazy so these seven death row inmates which does not include Thomas have served a combined 202 years costing Idaho taxpayers about 77.7 million dollars since 1986 how crazy is that? The longest inmate serving after Thomas is a male inmate who was sentenced to death in 1986 for the first degree murder of two individuals in Idaho County. That's a huge number, and that's just seven of the death row inmates, eight if you include Thomas, which would bring that number up over $90 million. That's insane. I'm, like I said earlier, there is nothing deathy about this death row. Thank you for joining me today, you guys, on this episode of Those Murder Girls Podcast. Thank you so much to my new patrons. Again, if you would like to support the show, you can do so on patreon.com. Just sign up, search for Those Murder Girls Podcast, pick your monthly tier, and boom, there you go. It's super easy. Or you can make a one-time donation using PayPal and the email address murdergirls at thosemurdergirlspodcast.com. Thank you guys so much. I will see you back here next Friday with a brand new episode. Bye, guys.